Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in this seventh episode of Series 5, we're going to be looking at data governance, and that's rapidly becoming a core competency for financial services firms, in financial services firms in general, and compliance officers in particular. Now, stating the obvious, we're in a digital age, but in that digital age, firms do need to embrace the fact that data is a vital strategic asset, and from there, build a business-wide approach to data aggregation, management, storage, security, retrieval, and destruction. In other words, you need to build a business-specific approach to data governance. Now, successful data governance will have multiple benefits one of which will be a direct improvement in the compliance function's capacity and capability to have a line of sight to the regulatory risks being run by the business. And I would suggest that is particularly pertinent in the hybrid working world with which we're all living. Now, to consider continuing compliance challenges associated with data governance, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Mike Cowan. Hi, Susanna. Well, thank you as ever for joining me. Now, we're going to try to carve up this discussion because, to be honest, it is a vast discussion into three main pots, not necessarily all in that order, but three main parts to it. Why do we want and or need to control data? How do you do that controlling of data? And last but not least, what are the regulators doing? And as part of that, what, what should you be doing as a firm? So, Mike, where should we start? Data governance, new core competency. Well, I have to say, Susanna, that, that you know, in my experience of these podcasts, you don't choose the small subjects. Um, uh, data, <laughs> data governance no. is a huge subject um, that's potentially got tentacles into pretty much all operational processes uh, within the financial services firm. And, I mean, we've discussed this in previous podcasts and throughout TRRI um, um, articles, but but data needs to be seen by firms as, as a strategic objective rather than an operational process, which is where sort of governance leads to, uh, to try to cover both of those bases. However, you know, that argument aside, which we've had on previous podcasts, the proliferation of new initiatives that have that, that have been happening in recent years have data at the core um, of, of their operations, at the core of their raison d'etre. So let's just skip through a few of these. And th- these are sort of reasons why data is so important and becoming incrementally more important as, as we, we move forward uh, day by day. So there is artificial intelligence and machine, machine learning. I mean, essentially, computers mimicking human decision-making, using a mass of data to draw conclusions and, and make associated decisions. And we're seeing you know, AI and machine learning being used in a number of different business processes in financial services these days. You know, things like credit decisions, insurance claims, some trading decisions, fraud detection, robo-advice, they've all have some form of, of, of AI uh, involved within them. And those, uh, and those decisions are based on data. You know, I mean, it's, it's obvious to say that, but the data that's fed into, into AI and machine learning systems. 
So you get that data wrong and you get the decisions wrong. And potentially that has a detrimental effect to the firm, the customer, or both. And so it is imperative that data is accurate, up-to-date, and uh, and timely. Now, associated with artificial intelligence is the emergence of big data, you know, the analysis of large data sets to show patterns and trends within a particular topic. Again, the reliance here is on data being accurate, up-to-date, and comprehensive. Big data can be used in pricing decisions, marketing decisions, product placement. Again, the consequences of using data incorrectly could have a significant effect on your firm or your customer base. From a data perspective, the world is becoming a small place, as we all know, as you've alluded to in your introduction, Susanna. Uh, Cross-border information flows uh, are becoming the norm. And, and therefore, so does the risk of data misuse and the need for proper data governance, which is why we're here. Um, a more open business environment where data is transferred between organi- organizations, countries, and governments is already, is already being seen. In fact, two examples of this can be seen in recent years in UK and Europe. Firstly, the second payment services directive is an example of where payment services and and, and payment flows across borders uh, are being regulated. It was implemented to enable banks and and other payment account providers, their customers and third parties to share data securely with each other across borders. Secondly, the UK went live a couple of years ago with its own open banking initiative, This mandated the nine largest UK banks to allow their personal and small business customers to share their account data securely and directly with third-party providers. And underpinning all of these issues is the risk of cyber attacks and fraud scams, basically getting data into the wrong hands, either accidentally or through criminal methods. The onus here is on firms managing to manage their data in a secure way. And then finally, there is the need for financial services to provide the regulators with the required data as and when asked for. The subject of regulatory returns, whether it's transaction monitoring or more focused prudential reports, has been an area where firms have had difficulty meeting regulatory expectations in the past. Um, Whether it's been down to inaccurate data or data submitted late, There are enforcement actions that have drawn attention to weaknesses in firms' control environment. And with regulators ramping up activity in this area in the future, firms again will be under pressure to deliver accurate, comprehensive and timely data to the regulators. So another example of why proper data governance, data management is is imperative for firms. So, in summary, there are a number of tangible cultural initiatives that are requiring firms to take data management seriously. And throughout all of these developments, there are some common outcomes that can be seen. So, for example, the need for accurate data, the need to produce data in a timely manner. Thank you. And I'd weave in sort of some pieces around all of that. Um, data needs cleansing. It needs to be up to date, timely, all of those things. But don't forget, it also needs cleansing. You need to know what the bad, bad in inverted commas, stuff is and to be able to get rid of it. So it doesn't bias your machine learning. It doesn't mean you have an inaccurate return to a regulator. 
The other thing that your data needs to be able to do is to be reproducible. So if you're asking your data a question, you get the same answer twice, because otherwise that, again, leaves you into a whole heap of trouble. I'm just going to pick up in particular on the reporting part of this. Um, and yes, there are lots of rabbit holes we could go down with all of this, but the transaction reporting uh, failures, let me be really quite tactful about this, if the past really are an indicator of the need to do better with data management and data governance. Now, when MIFID 1 came in here in Europe and we were, UK was still part of the EU, it had enhanced transaction reporting requirements. I mean, and it is no underestimate to say that millions upon millions upon millions of transactions were misreported in the wake of MIFID 1 because firms had not implemented the right governance around the data and not implemented the right infrastructure with which to report that data. And the fines were multiple millions. MIFID 2, they haven't quite got around the transaction reporting issues yet, but as and when they do, and firms, and if firms still haven't done it correctly, the fines will be absolutely huge. And let's be clear, here in the UK, we have the senior managers regime, and there will be senior managers potentially held to account for this. So that's another element, another, if you like, impetus to weave into all of this, that actually data really matters. Now, I'm, I'm sort of going to move on slightly to some bigger challenges associated with this. And this one, I mean, has popped up a couple of times in the last couple of months. And, and on one level, it's kind of surprising. On another level, perhaps not quite so much. And digital transformation roared ahead during the pandemic. And, you know, everybody was enabled, everybody was online, everything was automated. Except for the fact there are still firms and they tend to be the older, bigger financial services firms that have paper records. Now, if the one thing you do with your data governance approach, your data is a strategic asset approach is get things off paper, get them automated, get them online, because paper is a really poor medium for storage and the, you know, the useful generation of management information and whatever in this modern day and age. Um, you know, some of the big Swiss banks reputedly have literally miles of paper records buried under the Alps in their great big storage lockers. Some of them, are, and hopefully the vast majority of them now, are all on some sort of computer system. But that was a huge undertaking. So not only do you as a head compliance need to think about any manual processes, manual workarounds that you may have to deal with, because they're obviously soft spots in your policies and procedures and your approach. I would suggest as part of this whole need to focus on data, where do you have paper records that still exist and are being used? That I would suggest is a really key area to have a really good look at because I mean, certainly looking into my own past, there were some really quite surprising places where, what do you mean that's all in a paper, on paper? Asking the question may not be the worst thing you do in, in, over the summer holidays in that sense. Mike, anything on all of that? 
Uh, no, only to um, um, only to completely agree with you. And in fact, um, I think I'm about to to um, to support um, that final point um, in the answer to the next question. And the next question would be: Well, I think we're moving on to how we can control the the, the data and, and and what we can do practically to do that. We can certainly move on to that. So how are we going to control all of this? I mean, let's be frank, the data points are vast. If we just use, for instance, the example of ESG and the data points now potentially expected to be co- collected, maintained, used, deleted, we're back into millions, if not hundreds of millions of data points. Yeah, yeah, completely. So, um, I mean, if we come back to the, to, uh, to a brief definition of data governance, uh, data governance, the process of ensuring that data is collected, managed, shared, and disseminated in the most effective and ethical way, just echoing again what you said in your introduction, I think I, I think it's um, important to recognize that some of the challenges with, with that, and you've already, you've already started me down this path, so I'm going to so I'm going to walk down it if you if you if you'll if you'll uh, allow me, uh, uh, Susanna. So I think some of the challenges here are that you, you know. The firms need to know what type of data they have within their firms. Is it personal data? Is it public data? Non-shareable data? Anonymized data? You know, the, the list goes on. But, but, but firms need to really focus in on what type of data uh, they have across their firms. They need to establish where this data is located, and again, you alluded to this with the uh, with the uh, the Swiss mountain analogy. But they need to know in which country, which jurisdiction, um, um, data is located, which system it's in. Is it in live data systems or legacy data systems? And which application is it? Is it is, uh, is this an archived application, or is, or is this an application that's used? By a very small part of the uh, of a subsidiary uh, within the within the firm, and firms need to know, you know, who the stakeholders of the data are, who owns the data, who generates the data, who is the recipient of the data. They need to really, really have a data um, life cycle, if you like, to to know where all the data is how it's being processed and where it is ending up. Again, echoing your point around around paper records, but also this applies to automated records. Firms need a, a detailed map of where, um, I, um, of where their data is. So I think my first point when it comes to data governance and what can firms do to manage it is that firms need to under, undertake a stock take or an audit of their data profile to get a clear understanding of the task before them and to plan and, let's be honest, budget appropriately for any action that needs to be taken to manage these systems. I think secondly, I think the second point I'd make around data governance and is the point that I think um, ownership within a governance framework is very important. Now, the board of the firm has ultimate ownership, of, ownership for data. I mean, as they have with, with, with any asset within a firm. But beneath them, uh, a data or information officer should be appointed to oversee the management of data. And beneath them, then individual operational owners or champions for specific data cohorts should should be allocated. I mean, these operational uh, owners, champions, if you like, um, should be tasked with applying the data policy to to the data sets under their control and providing periodic reports that data is being managed in line with that internal policy. Um, 
the policy, for example, that the firm should have a data policy. Um, it should be approved by the keep data accurate and up to date. Uh, the requirement for cons- consent where consent is necessary. Uh, classification of levels of sensitivity of data. Uh, appropriate communication channels for that classification of data. Storage and security requirements. Um, destruction policies. Um, and what to do when transferring data across international borders. I mean, this is a non-exhaustive list. I mean, firms will undoubtedly have other other areas that are more pertinent to their business models and pertinent to the way they use data. But again, some some form of policy needs to be signed off by the board. And this policy, you know, needs to needs to be monitored, and the monitoring of the management of data needs to be undertaken. So this, this could be done by the three lines of defense model. I mean, perhaps the first line operates a self-assessment process whereby periodically um, line managers sign off for compliance with the policy. Uh, the second line, a risk or compliance function, may undertake its own sort of dipstick in, infrequent periodic testing uh, to verify that compliance. And then the third line, the internal audit of a firm, could do a more high-level review of internal controls uh, um, within the policy and processes within the firm. And finally, a couple of other sort of governancey type things that I'll throw in. You know, training and awareness for all staff on their responsibilities, uh, both legal and regulatory, and also proceed internal procedurally, uh, needs to be mandatory within the firm. And uh, this may be something that the chief data officer um, uh, picks up from a content perspective uh, and is driven through a firm's mandatory training um, uh, process. And uh, finally, I will have a special uh, a special say for um, new systems and third-party interactions. And, and these also should be assessed within the context of the firm's data policy and within the context of the firm's data strategy. Um, and assessed for appropriate data management, that the controls are in place, uh, and that the governance is in line with the, the legal regulatory uh, requirements that the firm needs to comply with. Thank you. Yes, and I, I actually I would absolutely echo that last point. Without getting this right, or at least as good as you can within your firm, you, you're kind of hamstringing yourselves because. The need to be able to use data to your advantage, to control it, to manage it, to know where it is, where it's come from, what it's being used for, that will allow you to manage your business. I know that on one level sounds completely self-evident, but don't underestimate the value of having good, high-quality data without the noise that you know bad, irrelevant data can create. That is a goal worth pursuing. It is a goal worth investing in. And the compliance function has a huge part to play in that, in getting to good data management, good data governance. And I might mention, you know, board level policy. The board needs to be on, be aware and truly understand quite how important this is. And not just important regulatory wise, you know, so you can comply. Well, great. But also so you are able to manage the business. It will give you line of sight to what is going on. It will give you high quality information about what is going on in your world. And that's incredibly valuable from a business perspective. So on on that level, almost nothing to do with compliance, but everything to do with actually being able to manage your business. 
Now, I know we're moving very quickly through all of this, and it is a huge subject, but one of the areas, unsurprisingly, I suppose, given how important all of this is, is what are regulators actually beginning to do with about this? Um, and there are several areas where regulators and not just financial services regulators are looking long and hard at data protection in particular. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff we can, we'll come on to, but data protection in particular. And I'm just actually going to use the example of the states because it is a clear illustration of very uneven approach to policy making. Now, I'm sure many of you will have come across the California Consumer Privacy Act. Now, it's back, back in 2018, very much took its uh, lead from GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation coming out of Europe. It's not exactly the same, but it's very definitely in that space. Now, California itself has decided it doesn't really go far enough, and it is pr um, putting forward the California Privacy Rights Act. Now, that will come into effect on January 1st, 2023, so what, six-ish months' time. And not only does it up the ante in terms of the data protection approach, it also creates the first state agency focused exclusively on privacy. That's going to be the California Privacy Protection Agency. Terrific. However, it's also then worth weaving into all of this that there still isn't a federal law on all of this. So we have a state by state difference in the US. And then federally, you know, the overarching rules still haven't come to it. However, there is now a bipartisan draft bill, which is entitled the America Data Privacy and Protection Act, which could potentially have a, a shot at actually getting passed. And that aims to have a comprehensive data protection legislation, uniform national data privacy framework, and a, what's badged a robust set of consumer privacy rights. Now, given the US has got midterms coming up, whether it gets through, to be frank, I, I don't know. It may do, it may not. But it is worth making the point that even within one country, there is a big disparity between uh, how data, data privacy in this particular instance, is actually regulated, thought of, considered. And you as compliance need to be very aware that it is not a frictionless world, even between states in America, let alone international borders. Um, before we go on, Mike, anything more on uneven regulatory approaches? Um, yes, well, to support your uneven um, um, stance, um, they, they mean globally, it's a, it's, it's a mixed picture. Um, I mean, regulators have, have done a lot um, on data protection, data, data privacy around the world, um, beginning to edge towards data governance, uh, but it's still very much in the data protection, data privacy sort of area. Uh, but you know, again, just to echo what you're saying, not everything that has been introduced historically has had the desired effect. Some things have been seen as adding more bureaucracy rather than real substance. Uh, but what I think is clear from the regulator's um, uh, direction on this and, and the legislator's direction is that control over data is essential um, to be able to give customers confidence when doing business, when, when doing their business and thereby their business. So there has been a lot. So just let me touch on one or two examples um, 
Um, rather interestingly, in May, uh, uh, just gone, uh, the Bank for International Settlements actually issued an, a, a paper entitled uh, The Design of a Data Governance System. Um, actually, this paper proposes a data governance system that, that, um, that requires consent prior to, to collection, sharing and processing of data by service providers. Um, advocating that it should be uh, it should aim to be user friendly and, and low transaction costs, and it very much focuses on the consent element of 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 of, of data management, and it sort of builds on the organs principles. The organs principles being open, um, revocable, granular, auditable, and 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 notice notice given to the customer or or, or the, the the counterparty. Um, um, so, so f- f- again, I'll put the link in the show notes. But again, something for our listeners to consider as an alternative is the BIS's approach to to data governance. Um, in fact, in this paper, um, um, in its introduction, really, um, it, 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 it it builds it, it sort of goes back a little bit into the history of of uh, uh, data governance regulation and data privacy regulation. And it particularly points out two benchmarks, two milestones in this area. The first being uh, the United in the in the states, which was the Fair Information and Practices Principles uh, from the 1970s, which I think pretty much have been superseded uh, by the things that that you've been chatting about just a little earlier, Susanna. And then, secondly, in Europe, uh, the 1995 European Union Data Protection Directive which became the general data protection regulation, uh, which came into force in 2018. And that had seven principles, as we all know, uh, fairness, purpose limitation, data minimization, accuracy, storage limitation, integrity, confi- integrity and confidentiality, and accountability. And the BIS paper notes that the EU is now widely recognized as the global leader in data regulation. And the GDPR is the principal data protection regulation in, in Europe. Um, now, with the UK breaking away from Europe after Brexit, the UK retained um, the EU version of the of the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, uh, but also put alongside it uh, the Data Protection Act 2018. And to further um, to further develop the story within the UK, just to finish this off while we're on the UK, um, the government launched its own consultation for data a new direction in in September twenty one, um, where it was which was intended to inform its development of of the proposals to reform the UK's data protection laws. Um, um, as part of the UK's national data strategy. Now, this consultation is now closed. Uh, the responses generally supported the government's proposals. And the, the proposals that it sort of supported, and I'm not going to give you all of these, but I'll give you a, a two or three, that um, the government proposed some changes to, to, to data collection within research provisions, uh, and they were supported by respondents. Uh, the removal of consent requirements in relation to cookies was also uh, supported, and reforming the ICO with the em- emphasis on the importance of maintaining its regulatory independence uh, was also supported. Um, in areas that actually there was some pushback, 
um, uh, respondees didn't quite um, agree with um, introducing a nominal fee for subject access requests. Um, and um, the um, and they didn't uh, necessarily agree with removing the requirements for data protection impact assessments and some of the requirements for data protection officers, which were mandated within the GDPR. So a bit of a mixed bag. That is still being thought through by the, by the government. But I suppose the message from the UK's perspective is that data protection legislation is changing and is changing in line with government, is in change with line with government strategy. Finally, two areas, and I'm sure you'd be pleased to, to, to hear me say that because this is a this is a little bit of a dry area. But in the in the EU, the Commission um, uh, recently um, uh, published its um, Data Governance Act in the in the official journal. Uh, now, the the Data Governance Act will create a mechanism to enable the safe reuse of certain categories of public sector data. Um, uh, this includes trade secrets, personal data, uh, and data protected by intellectual pro property rights. And public sector bodies allowing this type of reuse will need to be properly equipped to ensure that privacy and confidentiality are fully preserved when doing this. So again, things moving forward in the EU to, uh, uh, to, to strengthen their uh, uh, data governance um, um, principles. And finally, finally, um, just, a, just a word on Asia. Now, um, there are, uh, in Asia, there is data governance. Um, I suppose you can understand this by, by Asia having probably the larger, larger of the proliferation of countries um, 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 of the areas that we're talking about. Um, so in China, they have security laws introducing um, national level cybersecurity standards. In South Korea, there are um, um, you know companies handling personal data are subject to the Personal Information Protection Act, uh, the Credit Information Act, and the Network Act. Uh, South Korea got quite a strong handle on data protection. Uh, in India, they've got their Personal Data Protection Bill, uh, which aims to enshrine um, individual consent as the basis for the use of personal data. And in Singapore, they adopted a cybersecurity bill in February 2018. So, um, and other countries have, have, have other things to, in, in uh, other legislation in this area uh, to, protect, uh, to protect data. Thank you. Yes. And the one bit I would add in, coming back to BIS, um, is BIS have floated the idea, and they very much see this sort of thing as the direction of travel. And it's the concept of embedded supervision. Now, embedded supervision would allow or permit regulators to go directly into the systems of firms. And it would, on the positive side, potentially remove the need for all trade and transaction reporting because the regulators could simply see it and extract that data. And theoretically, it would be you know much cheaper, much less administration, this, that, and the other, but, and, and you can see where the, the but is likely to be in this, giving a regulator access to your system, you're going to have to be very, very, very sure that not only is that going to be a weak link into your system, or sorry, not going to be a weak link into your system, but that your data is sufficiently 
robust, high quality, cleansed, all of the rest of it, what the regulator finds is not going to get you as the firm into trouble. That said, this is very much what BIS is thinking about. And it's particularly thinking about embedded supervision when it comes to the use of um, blockchain. So digital ledger technologies where it's an inviolate record, that sort of thing. Their idea, and you, know, you can see where this is coming from, is that if that's an inviolate record, well, why don't we, the regulators have the ability to look at that? And that will take out a lot of administration, a lot of cost out of regulating businesses. I think it is a very interesting direction of travel, if anything puts even more emphasis on the need for really good data governance, I would suggest it's that direction of travel because the last thing a firm would ever, ever want is for the regulator to find something out about the firm that that either the firm didn't know itself or the firm hadn't yet told the regulator. So be aware that there is some really quite potentially sophisticated and interesting technological directions of travel going on as ideas with the policymakers, but firms need to understand how they could begin to enable or comply with the concept, if that does come to fruition, of embedded supervision. And I think it's a really interesting idea and it won't be in place sometime tomorrow, but it's going to have to be a very careful path trod to get firms there because there are all sorts of bear traps that could be in the way, actually on both sides for that one. Um, As ever, we're running out of time and we could talk on all sorts of things in much more detail. So I, I will add in my takeaway for compliance officers, and it's coming back to bad data, data that needs to be cleansed. And just for firms to be aware that bad data can arise from a lot of different sources, but one of the ones that firms have tripped over in the past is the data that is there embedded in um, acquisitions. You need to include data surveillance, data monitoring, data investigations in the due diligence you do on any sort of acquisition. More than one firm has faced enforcement because they hadn't realized that X, Y, and Z was actually in an acquisition. And the last thing you need is for bad data to pervade your systems because you've been hooked up due to an acquisition. So do have that focus on bad data, it, its need to be cleansed, and just be very aware that bad data can arise in an absolute myriad of different sources. One definitely is acquisitions. Mike, takeaways from your perspective? So I think I'm going to echo a previous uh, a message that we've given um, on TRRI and through the podcast, which is um, which is treat data as a business strategy, have a strategy for data. Um, And to be able to do this, um, you need to be able to know what data you've got and where it is. This sort of partly echoes your takeaway there, Susanna, about, you know, please make sure that your legacy systems, the the firms that, uh, that you may acquire and their systems, um, the paper records that we've mentioned, make sure that that uh, 
someone in the firm has a complete inventory of where all the data is, that will make forming a data strategy much more much easier and will allow you to um, uh, to decide how to use data going forward and potentially how to manage that data going forward. Um, I think that um, um, so have a strategy. Knowing where everything is um, 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 helps to define that strategy. But uh, And I'll end on this point. No matter who's asking, whether it's customers, regulators, um, 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 legal law enforcement, um, senior management, no matter who's asking for, for data, have one answer to the same question. And that, su- that suggests, again, coming back to it, knowing where the data is, knowing that it's accurate, and knowing that you can get to it in a, in a, in a timely manner. So, um, so to summarize, have a strategy, know where your data is, and please just have one answer for the same question. Don't have regulators coming back to you questioning differences in stats that, that could be an easy fix to make. Very wise words. Thank you very much as ever, Mike. And thank you for listening to this particular episode of Compliance Clarified. Do hope you found it interesting and useful. Mike mentioned things to be included in the show notes. We'll add a bunch of links in there for you to have a bit of a deeper dive into some of these areas. We've also opened a survey for our annual FinTech RegTech and Role of Compliance report. So if you would like to take part in that, the link will also be in the episode notes. And of course, I'll pop the link in for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. As ever, very much appreciated if you could take the time to review the podcast and do let us know any suggestions for future topics. Thanks for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.